0: The going round He climbed up to the
1: roof and promptly hid the ground Hello fellow travelers and welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast This is episode 2 and what you just heard was an excerpt from the song Eleanor by English band Sidley Park As such today, we'll be anchoring in England and talking to Dr. Keith Bevan, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Lancaster University, regarded as one of, if not the most highly cited scientist in his field of hydrology. Keith, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. We've got Pablo as well and Jamie with us co-hosting. Hello there. Um, So Keith, you're a big deal in hydrology. Let's let's say that, (laughs) let's put it that way. you were born in in Barnhurst, is that right? In Kent, yes. Kent, yeah. Um, long time and, ago. Yeah, and you've you've had a, a pretty long career. Uh, but before we get onto all your achievements and everything, I can, I want to ask you, how are you doing in in these COVID times and and with all the the stresses and implications that has? How have you been?
2: Um, I've actually been fine. I've been very fortunate um, in that I've been isolating in a, a Cumbrian valley hmm. where, I can, where I walk and uh, and be, be pretty safe. Sounds like
0: a great way of being isolated.
2: Uh, absolutely, yes. I, <laughs> I've been really, really rather lucky. In fact, I, I've had this place for 20 odd years and I've said to people that um, it seems as if I've spent the last 20 years getting ready for... for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can as, a, fashion, uh, as a place to be. So, so, it's actually been a very productive time for me um, in terms of producing papers um, and photography. And photography, yes, yeah. Yeah. that's uh, my other my other main interest.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, sadly, a lot of that is taking pictures of water, which seems a bit um, almost incestuous, really. But uh,
1: <laughs> no, there's some sort of cameras I see behind you. In the
2: cabinet. Uh, yeah, that, that's my collection of old 120 folders. Oh, well,
1: look, right. yeah. Nice. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing you've been there for, since the beginning of lockdown.
2: They occasionally get used. Used, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's not just collecting. Oh, that's cool. Oh no, I still use film a um, oh. particularly 120 film. A purist, let's say. Bit of 5x4. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have a hard copy in the hand rather than just an <laughs> SD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Memory card. Yeah. Have
1: you been in uh, Have you been in this house then since the beginning of lockdown? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Before, in okay. fact. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Keith, it's you Capper Eden Valley in, in in Cumbria, which is called Malastang.
1: Malastang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to go through your your history a bit. Um, at least this is what I could I could find myself. So please correct me on anything that's uh, that I get wrong. But for our listeners to get an idea of what you've done through the years. Um, You had your bachelor's degree in geography at Bristol, is that right?
2: Yeah, physical geography,
1: yeah. Yeah, and then a PhD in uh, East Anglia University uh, for uh, catchment hydrology. Yep. Yeah, and then you went on to work for, uh, okay, Leeds University, Wallingford, Virginia, California, Santa Barbara, Polytechnique de Lausanne, Lausanne, KU Leuven, Uppsala, Swedish University of Agriculture Sciences, and Lancaster University.
2: Yeah, some of those were sabbatical periods abroad. Right. But, uh, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a quite a lengthy while list. I was, while I was once I joined Lancaster, because yeah. I came to Lancaster in 1985. Mm-hmm. And, um, so apart from those sabbatical years, I've, I've been there ever since.
1: Yeah, and how did you like, uh, on a personal note, how did you like Leuven? Because I, I'm from Belgium, so yeah, of I, course, yeah. I take a lot of pride in that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was a wonderful place. Yeah, um, no, it's uh, and a great place to, to work, um, and of course they have the brewery. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> that's very important. Yeah, we had a workshop at, at the end, and all of my research group came over in a minibus so they could stock up in beers. To <laughs> <eat>. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, you
2: you were yeah, also uh, elected. Well, I, I only got through about fifty or sixty of the three hundred odd beers that. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> it's a life. It's a
1: life's work on this, even for Belgians.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so you you've honestly won too many prizes to name, but uh, I think probably your your biggest achievement um, I think would at least in my eyes be that you were elected Fellow of the Royal Society in 2017. Um, so joining the ranks of uh, Isaac Newton. Um, Dorothy Hodgkins and, and, and Stephen Hawking and all that, um, and especially the first hydrologist in a while,
2: uh, for about fifty years. Yes, yeah. Um, because the, one of the ways that the system works is that you need fellows to nominate you, yeah. And so if there are no hydrologists, and <laughs> get nominated, and so that that's something I never expected to happen. Right. So okay.
1: That, yeah. No. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I mean, we're three years late, but congratulations on that. It um, was <laughs> But, you know, I think it's it's uh, we can say it's pretty much earned with 73 plus thousand citations, dozen books, 450 papers at least that I could find. um, And the co-creator of uh, Top Model Concept and Glue Method, which are both uh, pretty widely used in in statistical analysis and modeling. Um, It's a it's a full career there. And I I think it's uh, it it must have taught you so much uh, over the years. And I hope that you can, that we can learn a bit from you today, from from that career and from from your thoughts and and experiences. Um, I guess I want to start by asking you, maybe, what is hydrology for you as a as a hydrologist? What's hydrology?
2: Okay, um, so it's it's um, addressing the um, ways in which water. Once it hits the ground, we take over from from the meteorologists and the atmospheric mm-hmm. scientists, once it hits the ground, what happens to that water before it gets to the sea?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and of course, that involves a whole range of different processes that brings in um, particularly vegetation, land use management, um, water resources management, of course. Um, and. Um, hydrologists are particularly interested in the extremes of floods and droughts because that's when the system gets most stressed. Um, and that's where the advice of hydrologists is, is most usually sought because if things are running along normally and everybody has water <laughs> coming out the taps and, and haven't got, hasn't got water in their, in their ground floor, then uh, nobody's too worried about hydrology. But it's under those extremes that, uh, that uh, the stresses uh, occur much more. So um, that involves all sorts of processes of, of um, flow through the soil, through flow through rocks, flow over the surface, mm-hmm. and how, how water flows down through the channel network, um, how it expands under high flows to fill floodplains and houses and what, what flood defences might be required and so on. So there is a range of issues from... Um, purely physical natural science as to what happens naturally um, to the water to engineering design decisions about how to define design defences or sufficient s- space in reservoirs to, um, to supply water during the summer drought periods and, and so on and so forth. So, um, so in that, in there's, there's lots of interesting applied work. As well as the pure science aspects of it. Now
1: mm-hmm. uh, one of the one uh, th- oh sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No,
0: it's just one thing because um in your latest uh, publication, the one on the proceedings of the Royal Society, um I noticed you referred to hydrology as an inexact inexact science. What does that mean for the for, for everyone listening?
2: Okay, so um I called it an inexact science. Um, in part actually because of the time I spent in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When I was in Belgium, um, I, was, I was funded by the Frankie Foundation, who, who give um, three visiting professorships each year. Um, one in medicine, one in humanities and one in the exact sciences. So I'm not a doctor and I don't do much in the humanities, and I didn't see how I qualified under the exact sciences either. So when I had dinner with the director of the trustees at one point, I suggested they needed a fourth in the inexact science. <laughs> hydrology was definitely one of the inexact sciences because um, obviously, I, as I said, we, we start where the rainfall hits the ground. And yeah. but our, our ways of measuring how much rainfall we have particularly under flood extremes and so on and so forth, are actually rather not very good. So you start off with not really knowing what your inputs are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, it's not like physics, where you can control the boundary conditions in the laboratory. Uh, you,
0: you'd be surprised.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we do do um, controlled laboratory experiments as well, mm-hmm. but when you take that out into the field, yeah. it soon breaks down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the hydrology has as its most basic concept, the idea of the water balance, okay? Mm -hmm. So inputs equals outputs is a basic mass balance equation. Mm -hmm. So the (laughs) inputs are mostly the rainfall, the outputs are the river flows, and what goes back to the atmosphere is evapotranspiration.
0: Okay.
2: Um, And in fact, one of the first people to try and apply that in the UK was John Dalton. Mm. Um, He did it it for the whole of the UK in a paper in the uh, early 19th century and um, he found that he could only close the water balance to within 20% with the best estimates Mm. that he had at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, More recently, people have redone some of those calculations based on his numbers and have got it a bit closer. But even with the data that you have today, we still have these uncertainties about every term in the water balance equation. So they are all inexact, if you like, Mm -hmm. or all uncertain we can only try and close that water balance to a certain degree of confidence. Yep. And so, as you know, a lot of my work has been about just how uncertain, what is that degree of confidence with which we can try and make estimates in, in hydrology. And of course, a lot of that applies to other, other natural sciences as I was well. going
0: to say, yeah, this is incredibly... don't want to get too philosophical on, on the subject of science, but that work could apply to lots of what we what you call exact sciences. You'd be very yeah. surprised.
2: Oh yes, yes, and but 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 in, in the more exact sciences, you can do with do it with statistics. Okay, yeah. so you've got that, in physics, you've got the classic five sigma, yeah, um, for which mm-hmm. you will really accept things. Okay, mm-hmm. but our, our so that's a, a sort of. Um, what might be called a statistical uncertainty or an aleatory uncertainty, mm-hmm. whereas in in exact sciences we're dealing more with knowledge uncertainties or epistemic uncertainty, mm-hmm. where we don't actually know what's what's happening, we don't actually know what the values are. We 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 know some of the issues that can arise from a in a sort of conceptual or perceptual type of yeah. uh, from viewpoint, but we can't necessarily quantify those and we certainly can't make the strong statistical assumptions that you can with say the five five sigma test. uh, and you say that a
1: lot of um, practicing environmental modelers uh, have this philosophy which we're talking about in which they see variables and and factors on on their computers um, as real as really like tangible variables while at the same time you say recognizing that their science is not exact. So there's this kind of disconnect between the epistemic uncertainties and and the the way in which we want science to be this uh, objective truth in some ways.
2: Um, Yes. Um, uh, I I think people can easily be led into overselling particularly model predictions. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, that can get worse. The better we are now at uh, visualising outputs from models, because we can do that. We can superimpose outputs from models onto Google Earth and so on and so forth, yeah. so that it looks really real. Okay. So if you've got a flood inundation map, in fact, we've done this. We've 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 superimposed flood inundation predictions onto Google Earth, and if you show that to local, the first public, thing they do yeah. is they zoom. They know how to zoom on Google Earth, I zoom in down to their house to see whether it's in the flood waters or not, okay? But of course, that that's really hugely uncertain as to whether that blue line on that you superimposed on Google Earth, even if it's an uncertain blue line, really represents what's going on because of all the uncertainties involved. So a lot, a lot of my work has been concerned with counteracting overconfidence in model, predictions yeah
1: and this comes through in the form of for example your generalized likelihood uncertainty estimation the glue method right in which
2: that's that's the origins of 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 glue essentially yeah
1: yeah yeah Uh, how i mean i'm not sure how easy it will be for you to explain this yeah in layman terms to explain this but everyone how do you propose we combat these um these epistemic Uncertainties, or or even on things that we just cannot know um, in terms of, of data.
2: Um, well, clearly, clearly it's difficult because you're if if you knew how to handle them, they wouldn't be epistemically uncertain. So, <laughs> um, but what you can do is at least have <clears throat> what we've called a perceptual model of the uncertainties, in the mm-hmm. same way as you might have a perceptual model of the processes in, involved out there in the landscape
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's, an, that's another concept that I've, I've tried to, to put forward um, but more recently we've talked about perceptual models of the uncertainties involved and if you make a whole list of those then you can s- try and decide what, un- what assumptions you might make about each of those sources of uncertainty um, and that may sometimes be difficult, but it's an opportunity to get some of the users of the model outputs involved to see Mm -hmm. what you're proposing as assumptions about that uncertainties are consistent with what the stakeholders or the users might agree with. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. And the other advantage of doing that is that all those lists of assumptions provides an audit trail that somebody can come along later look at, as long as that's recorded, very often, of course, it's hidden. Yeah. And particularly in statistical assumptions. But mm-hmm. but um, you can look at that audit trail and they can just say, well, that, that was just silly. You know, we, we need to do something else. We can change those assumptions. So at least you can get that sort of evaluation on a community level. Um, and, mm-hmm. of course, it would be really nice to do that in the t- context we're sort of talking about with climate models as well. But that's a little tricky.
0: <laughs> yeah. Why, why, is it, why is it tricky with climate models
2: exactly? Partly because of the community involved and partly because <laughs> of the complexity of, of what's involved in, the, in terms of the, all the subgrid representations of processes and, and so on. Right. And so forth. Mm-hmm. Nowhere will you find that list of assumptions that's being made for each of the modeling groups. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. in fact uh, it gets revised too quickly <laughs> for them. Yeah. To, Keep Actually, a list.
1: I think um, today, just in the on that topic today, uh, a new study um, just got published and made the the news. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Um, an assessment of Earth's climate sensitivity uh, by Stephen Sherwood and 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 quite a few other authors. I think they've been working on this for something like eight years, twenty five different researchers, and they've managed to reduce the climate sensitivity um, predictions to. Uh, from two point from one point five Celsius to four point five to then two point six to three point nine.
0: Well, quick, quick. What, what do you mean by the climate sensitivity?
1: So, so it's the um, the climate sensitivity per doubling of atmospheric CO two. Um, it's basically global the average, difference
2: global average temperatures.
1: Yeah okay the the pathways and and this has apparently been the holy grail i'm talking about this because this has been the holy grail they said at least for the past 40 years we haven't been able to reduce that uncertainty um and after 40 years we've reduced it but uh, but you know it still seems to be a fairly big range (laughs) uh Mm -hmm. at least to to people who aren't in climate science it seems to be a big range and it still seems to be pretty uncertain even after having Reached uh, what they claim to be the holy grail of climate science uncertainties. So, so, so this seems to be a pretty recurring problem in uh, environmental science.
2: Oh, I, I think it's worse than that. The climate models. Um, uh, there's, there's all sorts of issue, issues in terms of uncertainties with the climate models, and and I, I haven't read the study. There was some. In the Guardian today, there were some very silly comments from climate scientists about that study. I don't know if mm-hmm. you, you've seen that article. Yeah,
1: I, I barely saw a few things.
2: Um, so. It's not clear on what basis they've actually reduced that uncertainty. Okay. Um, from my point of view as a hydrologist, I know that they cannot get the rainfalls right. <laughs> all, all climate impact studies that overlap into then the water field are usually based on making bias corrections to rainfalls as they do the downscaling to smaller scales from the climate predictions, because they cannot get the rainfall right, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's there's all sorts of reasons for that, but if they can't get the rainfalls right, they're not gonna get the energy partitioning at the (laughs) land surface right within the model Mm. before you you post-process that Those outputs to do do the bias corrections and so on and so forth, within the model you're not getting your energy and water balances at the surface right. If you're not getting the water and energy balances at the surface right, how are you getting the atmospheric dynamics right?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So my worry still is that the uncertainties in the climate models um, might be underestimating the rates of change.
0: Mm
2: Right. Because that would be the worst case scenario. Let's so say. You, that would be a worst case scenario. Okay. So, but, I mean, what uncertainty means in a very crude sense is that even if you've got the sort of mean prediction, or we should say projections, not predictions in, in, in this case, because <laughs> we don't know what the real emission scenarios are going to be in the future and so on and so forth. Even if you've got that mean right, what uncertainty means is that it could be worse and it could be better. Mm-hmm. But we do have to worry about the fact that things might be changing more quickly than the models are, are predicting, especially when we know that, that there's lots of uncertainties associated with those models.
0: No, not only that, also if we have such a, those uncertainties in the long run, would add up, mean we're underestimating everything. So that would mean it's growing a lot more faster than what we actually predict. But it will grow even faster in the future.
2: Well, that's, that's one side of the mean projection, mm-hmm. if you like. Of course, there's also the possibility that the uncertainties will mean that things grow more slowly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But that's less worrying. Yeah. yeah in, t- in the sense of being precautionary, you know, I, I wrote that paper back in 2011 about believing well, in climate change, but how can best we can, can we be precautionary, in terms of being precautionary, you should be worrying about the things happening more quickly. That's the side that we should be worrying about um, in terms of trying to induce change more quickly than a human social societal response should, should, be, should be worrying about the, 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 the quicker side of the uncertainty, not, not the slower side. Mm-hmm. The slower side is to our benefits, of course. Right, and and
1: this fits into kind of uh, one of the sentences in your paper that we we talked about before. But um, that models are wrong, but it, the hard part is finding out which ones are useful. So I guess how how can we make these uh, environmental or climate models useful? How how can we determine which ones are useful, and how can we make them more useful to
2: us? Um, well, I would I wouldn't I wouldn't. Um, even begin to address that problem because I'm not a climate modeler and I shouldn't I shouldn't really yeah. be commenting I have some reservations about what comes out of the climate modeling community as, as I've just explained But I'm not a climate modeler. So I shouldn't really be uh, commenting on on what is useful or not from, from that, that work mm-hmm. um, But I mean we we can be precautionary without climate models okay, so for flood protection, for example, again, speaking as a hydrologist, because that's an area I can comment on. Mm -hmm. um, We suspect that due to, you know, the increased uh, activity of the atmosphere, we're going to get heavier rainfalls. Okay, that might be summer convective events. It might be winter synoptic events. um, And it might be successions of of wet periods, like we had in February this this year, for example. So we suspect that climate change is going to make flooding worse. We don't know by how much, partly because climate models can't get the rainfalls right. Okay, so going, going back to that. So we can't put probabilities even on the projections of climate models for our rainfalls, but we suspect that they're going to get make floods more likely.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So from a being precautionary point of view, we need to protect people against flooding more than we are doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. But we can make that decision to increase protection against flooding without worrying about climate models at all. We just need to decide how much money we're prepared to spend to protect people against flooding, recognizing that we're not spending enough now to protect people against flooding in the current climate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the same thing can apply to droughts as well. If we suspect, as has been suggested, that we might be subject to increased drought periods in the summer, more severity in droughts, and even worse in other parts of the world, of course, mm-hmm. we can also choose to invest in protecting people against droughts by collecting more water, making water use more efficient, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, without worrying about the climate models at all. We just need to decide how much protection we want. Now, that's somewhat difficult in in policy terms, because policy terms often relies on the evidence of risk-based decision-type analysis where you estimate the costs and the benefits. All our protection schemes, for example, in this country have to demonstrate that the the benefits, I think, are eight times the costs.
0: Which is just an arbitrary parameter.
2: When you do the cost-benefit analysis, but that's arbitrary. Yeah. And it depends on knowing something about the probabilities of your flooding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, what we cannot do is know about the probabilities of our flooding in the future. Again, because the climate models can't get the rainfalls, right? <laughs> so, as, and they're only projections, they're not predictions of what might happen in the future. So we have to find another way of making those types of decisions as to how much to spend because we can estimate the cost very easily. You know how much it costs to put in a cost benefit, a flood defense. You know how much it, it costs to put in some natural flood management and so on and so forth. So the costs are not a problem. The question is what the benefits are when you don't know what the probabilities of, of your floods coming in are going to be. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so you, find, you need to find another way of making that type of decision. but. That's easy. That's far easier than yeah. knowing what the climate's going to do in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah. And on, on that topic, um, well, you keep saying that we can't get the, the rainfalls, right. Um, is there, what, what's the, can you, can you give us a, a sort of more, um, practical kind of idea of uh, maybe in your kind of field research, if you've, I don't know if you've done any field research, but in your field research, um, what kind of things have stood in the way of you getting that kind of data right?
2: Oh, it, it comes it comes back to purely the observational technologies that we have as a for a hydrologist, okay? So if we take rainfall as one element of the water balance, mm-hmm. then um, rainfall is, as you probably know, measured in rain gauges. Okay, rain gauges are about this big. <laughs> um, and... You know, they're spread throughout the country and we have a quite a high density in this country compared with global rain gauge densities, mm-hmm. but they're still sparse. Okay, they give you a point measurement. So in order to get the rainfall over a catchment area, you've got to extrapolate from your point measurements in space. Mm-hmm. And that's where some epistemic uncertainties come in. Now, um, the other technique we have array for is, is using radar. So we have the network mm-hmm. of... Met office radars around the country. You'll see, you you'll have seen the patterns every night on the of yeah. the rainfall coming in on the on the television, <laughs> okay? Um, which is fine in terms of the, an overall visual impression, but it doesn't give you a very good quantitative estimate of what the radar of what the rainfalls coming in are, because of all sorts of issues about um, anomalies and bright band effects and. Um, using a
0: fixed
2: uh, reflectivity relationship when in fact that varies with different types of precipitation and drop sizes and and so on and so forth. So the the radar estimates give you a good spatial estimate but not very good quantification. So that's just one term of the water balance. Um, Another term is the stream discharge which you you would think would be quite easy to measure except Mm -hmm. that we don't actually measure stream discharge we measure water level because that's very easy to measure by all, right. all sorts of methods. And it's very cheap to measure by mm-hmm. all sorts of different methods. But it doesn't give you the discharge that you want to close the water balance. You've got to convert that water level into a discharge. And then there's all sorts of dynamic effects that come in and um, and change in a, in a mobile bed river. Of course, the cross-section will change during a flood event. And then it goes over bank and floods the floodplain and houses and so on and so forth. So what's mm-hmm. the discharge we can estimate flood, flood peak discharges um, at best to probably around 20%. Okay, if you want an well, exact figure. Okay. <laughs> um, and at worst, probably about 50%, depending on the methods that are being used and the extrapolation methods that are being used as well. So, um, and then we've got evapotranspiration as the other major term in the water balance. And, and that's, there are various methods to that, but they're even less, un- less certain. Mm-hmm. Again, we come back to this issue of, of just basic, the, the very basic equation in hydrology, whether we have, well, we can, can close that, especially under, under flood conditions or drought conditions. When, um, under drought conditions, of course, evapotranspiration is effect, then affected by the soil drying out and how the plants react to that and, and, and so on and so forth. So that's also a very difficult problem. So, um, so yeah, so basically, we're limited by observational techniques in terms of these yeah. are
0: So, is there a future for hydrology in which we have improved upon these experimental techniques and we have developed much better measurements in which that would m- maybe get hydrology close to an exact science? Do you see hydrology in the future
2: um, in that pathway? There's some, there's actually some ongoing discussions about that at the moment. I'm leading a a working group of the British Hydrological Society looking at the future of hydrology, both observational and, and, um, and models and theory. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of observational techniques, there are some techniques that might come online, like local gravity anomaly um, measurements that are coming out of physics departments at the moment. Um, They've they've been very expensive in the past. Um, There is a satellite, the GRACE satellite, that does it at very large scale, sort of 60 kilometer scales, which is not very useful. It's useful at continental type hydrology but not for local hydrology. But if we could get some ground-based, some relatively cheap ground-based gravity anomaly measurements, then that gives an estimate of storage, which of course is another term in the water balance equation as to what the changes of storage are. And that might help us close the water balance equation. Hmm. Um, people have suggested some other geophysical geophys- techniques um, for doing that, using ground-based radar um, and, um, and my- microwave-type measurements as well, but they're still pretty coarse. They don't give you an overall picture of the storage that's going on. They're generally limited to transects and, and mm-hmm. so on.
1: So are you, uh, in a way, advocating for accepting those uncertainties, really, And and trying to work with what we have, despite... You
2: you have to, but you have to be honest about what the uncertainties are, and you Mm. have to recognize those uncertainties. And again, that's part of the origins of the glue methodology as well, is to to accept those uncertainties, make lots of model runs, which (laughs) mostly in hydrology, we do have some computationally intensive models, but mostly in hydrology, people are using relatively fast to run models for catchment areas Um, so we can make lots of model runs that reflect some of those uncertainties and then we can see which of those match the data allowing for the uncertainties in the data as well Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can reject a lot of those um, as being not consistent with the observations that you've got and you you keep running with the ones that are consistent with the observations that you've got. Of course the interesting point comes when you reject all of the models runs that you've got. Okay. But, right. um, I've always argued that that's a good thing because it means you've got to do better, either <laughs> yeah. in your observations or in your modeling capability. It means you're forced into doing something. Um, and, that can, and, and now that we're getting spatially distributed models that you can visualize, as we were saying earlier on Google Earth and so on, mm-hmm. um, local people can, Tell you when your model predictions are going wrong
0: citizen oh. participate so that,
2: that gives you a feedback I, and I think this is going to change the way in which we do this type of modeling that gives you a feedback into where you're going wrong what you need to try and do to correct that do you need a process based model do you just need different parameters um, is it is it you know producing about the right results but the, for, for completely the wrong reasons and and so on and so forth. There's also interesting issues that come back if you allow that sort of feedback back. It's a sort of, what, I, what I've called a models of everywhere concept. Mm-hmm. Um, that I do think is going to change the way in which we, we do things once we let people loose on some of these visualizations. Uh, um, yeah. And particularly if, if it does affect their own house and their own house value, if it seems to appear to be in the floodplain or, um, or not, um, it becomes rather important to people.
0: So you mentioned these really computationally expensive models uh, really quickly. Yeah. Is there some simulations that you are running Are you, and do these simulations have any numerical parameters apart from physical ones that you need to be careful with?
2: Um, well, <laughs> that, that's a whole subject area of discussion in itself, um, because oh, yeah. um, the computation intensive models tend to be those that are solving nonlinear partial differential equations so yep. similar to the atmospheric dynamic models mm-hmm. in 3d um based on um some some physical theory for what happens in the soil in a porous media okay in 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 hydrology that's called the darcy richards equation mm-hmm. so it's a, a continuum differential equation um but yep. it's it's highly nonlinear so you've got to use some some iterative methods. Yes, evolve with over
0: time. So
2: similar, similar to some of the to, to things that are elsewhere in physics. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: however, um, um, I've been trying to persuade the hydrological community for 30 odd years now that um, real soils really aren't like that. Um, <laughs> there's there's epistemic uncertainties again about the structure of the soil and way and the way in which water flows interact with root channels and earthworm channels and cracks in clays and so on and so forth
0: earthworm channels
2: earthworm channels as well yeah
0: (laughs) okay wow okay that's quite impressive (laughs) (laughs) so there's there's all of these tiny
2: details all this biotic turnover in the soil that has an effect on water okay and that Mm -hmm. interacts with organic matter in the soil and how then how, how you manage the land in terms of cultivation and, and so on and so forth. So there's all these detailed complications.
0: No, not there's,
2: there's no way you're going to represent that in, a, yeah. in even the most finest detailed continuum equation. In fact, the theory, the, since the theory is nonlinear, it tells you you should not be using the same mm, equation mm. in a heterogeneous domain at the grid scales with which you can run your model. You hmm. could we'll be using something more complex that reflects the the underlying non and heterogeneities w- within your grid square. Okay, if you like. This makes like. this
0: makes plasma physics sound really easy, <laughs> 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 exactly,
2: exactly the exact sciences, if you like, are far easier.
0: <laughs> In this case, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to complain I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, uh,
1: I want to I want to get on the topic of um, the IPCC we we briefly mentioned your uh, uh how should I put it your conflicts with the uh the international kind of climate modeling uh, and, and and conflicts
0: bar- makes it sound like there's a war. Scum.
1: Yeah, maybe not a war but at least it sounds like you guys have had your differences at least. Um
2: can you you've explained a little oh, bit no, to- I mean- only in the sense that um, I don't think that the climate models that go feed into the IPCC process sufficiently recognise the uncertainties involved in making those projections. Okay, mm-hmm. so they they do do ensemble now. When I started this, each each group only had its own deterministic model. So the ensemble was just the ensemble of models from the different groups, modeling groups yeah. around the world. Now, most of those groups are doing ensembles. And, um, but of course, that's that's expensive. So that tends to be with a somewhat coarser grid scale than, than their deterministic, their best, their best estimate model, if you like. Um, but even the ensembles, with perturbations to parameter sets and 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 so on and so forth um i do not think reflect properly the uncertainties involved in making those projections Mm -hmm. added to which i still have this issue it's not a conflict it's just you know a fact that they cannot get the rainfalls right (laughs) and that's 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 what i'm looking at in fact they don't do that well on global temperatures compared with database methods but but the rainfalls they do much worse on. So I'm from my hydrologist perspective, um, I have I do have a worry about the facts as we said earlier that if they can't get the rainfalls right, um, why am I going to use their outputs in worrying about what might happen to w- water resources in the future? Yeah, um, and flooding and and droughts and, and and so on and so forth. So that's why I've I've sought to. So to so I'm not I'm not critical of them in the sense that they they're not doing the best they can given the resource that's available in terms of computational time. Um, I just worry about the fact that they're not properly reflecting the uncertainties.
1: You told us yesterday as well that you'd been uh, you had written a review of the hydrology at least of uh, of one of the IPCC reports.
2: A long time ago, yes. I think that was IPCC two. So, so that's 1990s. twenty years or so ago.
1: Yeah.
2: And having that review, I never got asked to do anything for them again. Yeah. <laughs> that's indicative of what my review was like. Yeah. yeah.
1: Can you can you expand a little bit on that? Can you tell us? I don't know if you remember much of it, but it it was a while ago. But is, do you know kind well, of what was wrong with their models? Apart from the,
2: but they were just taking the change factors for precipitation as inputs to hydrological models to say something about what was going to happen to the hydrology in the future. Okay, and at that point, of course, we didn't. We only had a range of deterministic models. We didn't have models of model outputs either. So there was a very restricted range of of uh, change factors that were, were coming out. And in fact, it might even have been only based on one set of change factors and, and so forth. Um, and, and change factors are, are a sort of interesting way of getting around the fact that they can't get the precipitation right. So you, so you compare the current condition coming out of the model and you estimate what the percentage change is without worrying about your observations and then you apply that change factor to the observations as if it was true. Um, <laughs> and I just made the argument that, you know, there were so much uncertainties in 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 what the real precip- how the how the real precipitation was being poorly reproduced by um, the 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 past the, the historical model. Have faith in that in that type of activity. And I, I don't think that's changed very much either. Um, and if we take IPCC nine. Oh nine. I haven't looked at the more recent ones, but back in back in the own, sorry, not IPCC, but the UK climate change projections for in, in 2009, there we did have an ensemble of outputs, although the basis for those was somewhat shaky. Um, but you could look up um, for you know twenty twenty and twenty fifty what the change factors were for precipitation and temperature and so on and there was a uh, we gave distributions as if they were probability distributions, but they were only <laughs> only only probabilities of projections they weren 't probabilities of what might 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 happen and then people were just taking those and applying those to hydrological models and so on and so forth uh, <laughs> regardless of the fact that the original climate model couldn't get the precipitation right so it's a neat trick to use the change factors but um whether it's scientifically justifiable um was a, something something of a concern to me
0: yeah.
2: and as, a, as i was trying to explain earlier we don't need to use the climate models to be cautionary about the future yeah. okay? we can be precautionary Without invoking the climate model prediction,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so- I, I I hear a lot that the water cycle is really the the crux of the issue around climate change. Um, from from some people, they, I, I've seen this time and time again. They say climate change is about many things, but most of all, it's about the about change in the water cycle in in and how that regulates all things on Earth um, in a sense. So shouldn't we, shouldn't we put, you think, more pressure on those hydrological models to, to to kind of to determine what's what's more useful than not, let's say to not use the word correct, um, what's more useful than not, because it seems like, you know, the, the amount of storms then impact the crops, um, which then impacts sort of like uh, soil, etc. And uh, I just feel like there's so many factors turning around specifically around water um, and it just seems like we're not really talking about those uncertainties that you're talking about
2: well i mean there there are there are some um, some really large scale water effects and um, particularly in terms of the ocean circulations for example that yeah. that how that feeds into the i mean before they they had joint ocean atmosphere models and this goes, you know, this um, goes, goes back to the early IPCC reports mm-hmm. before they had, they had to do flux corrections for the energy every year, because they, they didn't have a representation of the energy fluxes in the ocean. So the oceans, it's, in terms of the water impacts, is, is really quite important. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that definitely affects things like the monsoon rains in, in Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. So the feedbacks are so... Um, far more than, than, than we're likely to be impacted in the UK. Other areas of the globe, both in terms of floods and droughts, are likely to be much more impacted than, than us. So, so there are some really important large scale. But um, again, it's unlikely that the models are going to get the small scale detail right in terms of convective rainfalls that might damage crops or <laughs> hailstorms that might damage crops and so on and so forth. But what they can tell us is, is that, you know, we should be expecting more of those things because of the increased activity in the atmosphere
0: yep.
2: and higher temperatures leading to more evapotranspiration and, and so on. They so the trend. Yeah. And, and, you know, a warmer atmosphere can hold more water in terms of, so there's going to be more water up there as well mm-hmm. to come back down again. So, so that that's, you don't need the detail to recognize that um, for the future. Um, but you don't need the climate model predictions to make decisions about how to invest to be precautionary against that. That's the point I'm trying to make. So, so I'm not criticizing that community. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm saying is we don't we don't actually need them. <laughs> <laughs> do better there's two ways of being better um one is protection like increased flood defenses and so on and so forth and and the other is changing trying to change society to just be more precautionary about what we're putting into the atmosphere and so on so (laughs) that's, that's that's an old debate really that's an old debate but we don't Climate models have served the purpose in in, in raising um, attention of politicians to what might happen, but we don't actually need those to be need them to be precautionary. Yeah, in my view, mm-hmm. at least. Someone
0: yeah someone did say um, there's this. Like, is it? We don't need the scientists. We don't need the politician. We need the priest. Basically saying we do need to change society to some level we need to have, a, is a complete cultural change. Hmm.
2: Um, yes, um, but I, I don't know that it has to be um, so dramatic. That, um, <laughs> okay. you know, we, If you take Australia, for example, surely after this year in Australia, the public perception of climate change will be Changed more than it even was before. I mean, they have yeah. had long, long periods of droughts and so on. But with all all the fires that they've had and so on this year, um, and California as well, of course, things are, seem to be yeah. get, getting worse. For a year, public public perception will will change um, more so in those more extreme environments, perhaps than than in our environment, when the change, even though we suspect it's happening in terms of floods and. And so on um, is maybe significant, but perhaps the perception will change. It's, it's a question of of ha- having the the people, the politicians, who would you know, take that as being important. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some you you're you're convinced already. It's it's uh, okay. <laughs> I'm convinced already that we need yeah. to, we need to do more. Um, no. It's, of you know, what the best strategy is to, to try and in, in, induce greater change?
1: Yeah how, I wonder because you've, you've had um, some decades in this field, how have you seen the public perception and I guess also the perception from those in positions of power change around the topic of specifically of environmental science even though I, I know you're not that's not your specific area but um, I just wonder, how you've seen things change and develop over the years.
2: Well, we we were worrying about these things and about sustainability and self-sufficiency and so on back in the seventies um, with the oil crisis in the nineteen seventies, which I suspect you won't remember. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it was a tough event. and um, and uh, people responded, and come in and and uh, the the, the, the the me, me decades arrived, and then the austerity decades, and so on and so forth. So there, there have been changes over the, over time, um, and it's always, always, it's always been on the agenda. Um, but economic development, certainly in this this country, um, became much more, in, became dominant, um, mm-hmm. and partly, partly based on. On relatively cheap energy, of course, so you didn't have to worry about it too much. Um, since since the 90s, of course, things have kicked in a lot more. We're much more aware of the potential for climate change now, partly because of the climate models, as I, I said earlier, raising the raising the issue much more strongly.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I, that's still on an upward trend. I, th- I think you know with all the, all the various disasters, as we said in Australia, California, around the world. Um, it, it, politicians are, are going to have to react, and that then brings in whether, they, we, whether we can get people to react quickly enough. Especially if we gear in the uncertainty in terms of the climate projections towards the steeper end. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> the uncertainties in those projections again. If things are actually happening more quickly than the models are predicting, and there is some evidence that that might be the case, both in terms of extreme rainfalls and, and extreme temperatures in Australia and elsewhere. That's quite scary. <laughs> um, there is some evidence that things are happening more quickly. So it might be veering towards that, level, that, that, that higher end of the uncertainties. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is whether we can get people to react react quickly enough. Yeah, I was going
0: to ask that. Do you are you are you a pessimist? Are you an optimist? Do you think we're going to react
2: on time? Oh yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, that is a good question. Uh, I'm not. I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, I guess I verge on the pessimistic, but you know, the human race is relatively adaptable. It yeah. might be that that things will change very quickly if we mm-hmm. we have to respond to various events. I mean, it, it's quite a good sign that you know, the, 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 the surveys that have been done that suggest that the majority of people, even in this country, do not want to go back to life as it was before. They want to something that's greener, more sustainable, and, and so on and so forth. And that's a fairly yeah. large proportion of the of the population in those surveys that's coming out mm-hmm. in, in that direction. Of course, yeah. as with the oil crisis in the 70s, perhaps once things do recover, that will start to get forgotten again.
1: Yeah. What's that quote about pessimism again? Uh Jamie. Uh can you pull that up, Jamie? The the Gramsci quote. Yeah, it's along the lines of op- pessimism of the intelligence, optimism of the will. Yeah.
2: There you yeah. go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit like that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean that's that's you know, given given my concerns about uncertainties, um, and how big those uncertainties are in some of the some of these areas of the environmental scientists, that it's 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 it is somewhat difficult to be optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I have been I have been criticised as being too pessimistic, even by hydrologists <laughs> in the past. In fact, um, at one big EGU me- meeting, town town meeting, um, at one of the big scientific reunions, I was actually criticised for undermining the science by. Worrying too much about all these uncertainties. Right, I'd be far more off actually concentrating on the science itself. <laughs> um, that actually, led to an interesting, a series of papers about undermining the science that I initiated in uh, in a journal called Hydrological Processes. Mm. But um, so that that was actually quite fun. I
1: mean, yeah, <laughs> it seems like you wear that as a badge of honor in a way. <laughs> yeah,
2: and you do have to be. You do have to be honest about about you know what you can do yeah. um, what you can predict what how how well you can represent these systems which as a, as you said are far more complicated than some of those physical things that you're doing plasma physics <laughs> and so on, you know.
1: but do you think that i mean surely i i look at this from a non-scientist point of view it seems to me that when you have models with so many factors like you know we've uh, we've talked on the podcast before about people trying to model the entire planet inside the program and just how absolutely insane um it, it must be just the amount of data that's required for that um theoretically and you know it seems to me that with so much price yeah with so much data necessary with so much data about the topic and uh, but also with so many relationships between those data points, and how they affect each other, and can can worsen each other at, at you know either um, sort of trends there in ways that are easy to read, or even sometimes amplify each other in, in very bizarre kind of Wait, ways. That,
0: that's that's what we call non-linear. Yeah, so. in
1: like logra- lo- uh, logarithmic ways, I think. For example, like I, if I'm if I'm using that right, I don't know. <laughs> but so my my question is is more like how. I don't understand how people can can not take the the worst case scenario personally because with so many unknowns, um, it, it seems like we kind of have to take the more precautionary outcome.
2: Right, exactly, um, and that that would be my argument too. And 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 one way of I, I've tried to push things in that direction is is to be to try and encourage people to be more explicit about their uncertainties especially about the epistemic uncertainties, mm-hmm. the lack of knowledge, okay? And, 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 you know, what assumptions you have to make to represent some of that lack of knowledge in, in a more or less realistic way? It's, it's only going to be more or less realistic because these are epistemic uncertainties. You don't know actually how to, how to deal with them. If you knew how to deal with them, they wouldn't be the unknown and, un- well, no, they wouldn't, they'd, they'd be known knowns, they wouldn't be known unknowns. <laughs> but, um, um, and then, of course, there's the unknown unknowns, which we don't worry about because we don't know about them yet. Okay. So the, those are the one uncertain. Those are the uncertainties that we don't have to worry about. But you just have to recognise that you might have surprises come in, and in particular mode switches in, in nonlinear non dynamic systems like the Earth atmosphere system. We might we know that the mode switches have taken place in the, in the past, actually over, over quite short periods of time from some of the long term records. That could easily happen again, and the models are not predicting that. But it it is a potential epidemic uncertainty. So yes, we should be being precautionary, as I I tried to explain before, and finding ways, the best ways of doing that. And that may not be to the science. It may be much more down to behavioral science, okay? We've talked a lot, there's been a lot of talk in the media about the behavioral scientists handling the COVID-19 um, how, how should society how should you deal with society in, in that? Um, I don't I don't think that's Been handled very well in this country.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah <laughs> <Let's>
2: say that. <laughs> um, But that mean, may mean that that may well mean that the politicians haven't been taking the behavioral scientists advice on board Let alone the scientists advice on board. We don't know that because we're not privy to those interactions between those but But the climate problem is somewhat similar. It is much more of a societal behavioral science Mm -hmm. problem than it is a a purely scientific problem. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And particularly because we have all these epistemic uncertainties. So we do need more behavioral science in taking what's happening and converting that into action than we need scientific scientific projections of what the climate might do in 2050
0: yeah mm-hmm.
2: okay. so so you know perhaps get more interviews with behavioral scientists yeah perhaps, yeah if you're interested in this area than mm-hmm. with the scientists who are interested in this area. yeah
1: well well one of the i mean for sure that's uh, we're always working on you <laughs> kind of Topics and so, so I'll definitely add that to the list. But um, one, while we do have a, a scientist here, uh, I want to ask you about um, tipping points. Have you have you done Thank any you. research uh, that's related to tipping points by any chance?
2: Not really, because um, hydrological systems don't really involve tipping points. They they can involve some thresholds, mm-hmm. like whether you get surface runoff or not, or whether the the, the, the river goes over bank or not. But in general, we have a nonlinear system, but it's constrained by the inputs. Okay. So we get a rainfall input, the river goes up and comes down again. Mm-hmm. But it always comes down again because the rainfall stops. Yeah. Okay. We don't really switch into another mo- mode of behavior. So it's a, the our systems are very much constrained non-nonlinear systems rather than right. unconstrained systems where the non-linear dynamics can give you much more in the way of tipping points yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, we, we have thresholds. You know, it does a landslide occur, for example, um, during a flood event. So but that's more of a threshold than a tipping point mm-hmm. in, in, in the sense of changing up completely the mode be, of yeah. behavior. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, I You've had a lot of uh, f- of experience in different parts of the world. I want to ask you what your your favorite kind of uh, field experience or or Maybe just a sabbatical or, you know, whichever part of your career did you enjoy most?
2: Yeah, that, that's difficult to say. Um, and I've certainly just enjoyed in, you know, working in the field and looking at the systems in Cumbria, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're photographically quite interesting too. But um, I do spend quite a lot of time in Switzerland. So um, I, I enjoy very much the time uh, there, particularly in the, the Alps and the pre-Alps um belgium was great um for the beers <laughs> yeah it's one of the reasons
1: i'm happy to be yeah. back to be honest <laughs> <laughs>
2: um and yeah where i've been elsewhere in australia and and um and california and so on and so forth i um, and the three years i spent in virginia um we had some great field sites in Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, so they were great oh, places. Yeah. To, Blue Ridge
1: Mountains, uh, of course. <laughs> work. Signing
2: through everyone. There were occupational hazards you could occasionally. Um, there were lots of fallen trees because they had a, um, an ice storm in, just after I arrived there, they had an ice storm oh. very early in the year when the trees still had their leaves on. And in places in the, in the Shenandoah National Park, a third of the trees came down, so oh. you had to be very careful. Um, Stepping over fallen trees because there might be a snake copperhead on the other side, and we did have some water quality samples samplers that, that went. At, uh, I went out one day and it had gone missing, and I found oh it God. about twenty meters downstream with some big bear claw marks in the plastic. But um, so there were some
1: observations oh. places. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds interesting.
2: Interesting place work so yeah i've been very lucky to have um lots of interesting places to work with and, and very lots lots of good c- colleagues as well scattered mm-hmm. around the world that's you must have a massive of, network of really contacts. Nice. yeah and and that's you know even now i'm retired isolated in 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 malastang i'm exchanging emails with people all over the world yeah. still. so um people i some of whom i met uh 30 or 40 years ago so um that's that's also been uh, that's been one of the advantages of working in academia. Yeah, and on, on a on on more
1: uh, sort of human level, to, to get away a little bit from the hydrology, right? Um, because I'm I'm also very much interested in in your personal perspective that's been informed by all these decades of, of experience. Um, how do you feel about where we are and where we're going in terms of of responses to climate change in terms of mitigations? Um, the sort of general, not just the government's approach, but also the public's. Um, I'm wondering how you feel as an individual, uh, informed by all your years of experience.
2: Um, Well, that sort of goes back to some of the discussions we had earlier. As I said, I'm somewhat pessimistic that we're going to get society to react quickly enough, especially if Things might be happening more quickly than the models are predicting, but on the other hand, I'm quite optimistic that that it has a much, the fact that we need to react has a much higher profile now. Mm-hmm. Um, in in part because because of you know organisations like Extinction Rebellion, in part because of Greta Thunberg and 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 all the all the publicity that she's managed to generate and and so on and so forth. There is a much higher profile now than there was. So. One and and that survey that I, I cited about what should happen post COVID, um, as well, people don't really want to go back to the old the old ways, or at least a large majority. Mm-hmm. So one can be optimistic in in that respect. We just need to keep it going somehow. Yeah. Um, and again, that's where we need to get the behavioral scientists involved. Mm-hmm.
1: I wonder how you feel about Lancaster's, because you've been at Lancaster for over. 25 years is that right so you must have seen the university go through changes um you know jamie pablo and i have worked a little bit in trying to change some of the ways that lancaster does things in terms of uh, environment um how did you see lancaster university develop over the years in that regard
2: it's like the rest of society it's developed slowly um Um, You know, it now has its own wind turbine and and so on and so forth. Um, And certain practices have changed to to be more energy efficient. Um, um, But on the other hand, you still find that most scientists concentrate on their own particular specialism Mm -hmm. and trying to do their science and get the money to do their science. Um, And sometimes don't worry so much about the wider picture. Mm Um, and that's true, even perhaps for some of the climate scientists. Um, that, uh, they're, they're so focused on trying to do what they do well that sometimes the wider picture gets gets somewhat lost. And and of course, many of us are not all that good about communicating our science to the wider community, to wider wider society as well. So. So again, things have changed, but perhaps not quite so much as, as we would have hoped. Um, I think, I think um, there might be a more reflection after, after COVID again, particularly about things like, um, for example, scientists traveling to meetings, <laughs> OK? Uh, traditionally, has used up a lot of um, uh, CO2 from airplanes. <laughs> emissions from aeroplanes. People are going to perhaps be a little bit more thoughtful about that now. Hmm. Um, there will be more online meetings than there, there, there was. So um, again, there's, there's, there are some reasons to be optimistic about, about future change, but um, I'm not sure how much is going on about how best to in, induce yeah. some of those changes. It sounds like when you
1: some philosophers as well. <laughs>
2: Um, yes, well, they they also have careers to make, so they, they also have to carve out niches um, to get their own citations and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So um, it's not so different in philosophy. I think sometimes they also miss uh, some of them miss the wider picture. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that again, you know, can can we get some of the behavioural scientists involved to to try and encourage the, this wider viewpoint? Yeah. Um, taken by society more widely as a whole, and, and perhaps given you know that that's been established in within COVID, perhaps perhaps that's a tact to take for the um, for the for the you know uh, change to change in society to combat climate change. To so be going back to what I was saying just about being precautionary. How, how best can we be precautionary?
0: Right. We don't. I we don't really have that much time left, but. There's this paper which really caught my eye, especially from the title, and I wanted to ask you about it. It's called "Advice to Young Hydrologists."
1: I was hydrologists. just about to ask that as well as a final question. How did you read? I think
0: mind? I think it's a it's a good <laughs> note to yeah. Uh, it's advice to young hydrologists, but maybe we can expand on that. Your advice to young God. Uh, university students. Great, great minds, about, great
1: minds really think alike. Great minds
0: huh? think alike. <laughs> uh, what, what would what would be <laughs> your that, advice for
2: that? That was a paper I wrote on my retirement from. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I haven't totally retired, obviously, from Lancaster. But when I started taking my pension, shall we say, <laughs> <laughs> so, retirement in that sense. Um, and there are a no, number of aspects uh, to that paper. One is was about making a career in hydrology, mm-hmm. because um, for a young person starting out. Um, well, basically, you need money and citations. Yeah. So, you know how best to to get that within the academic mm-hmm. arena, at least. That's what your next appointment is going to be based on. That's what your promotions are going to be based on, and so on and so forth. So, how how do you do that? And I add some comments in there about how best to write your papers mm-hmm. to to try and try and do that. But the other main aspect of that was about being honest honest about your science, because a lot of one of of the things I put in there that a lot of my highly cited papers have just come out of trying to be honest about what what I've been what I've been doing. What Mm -hmm. what about the modeling in hydrology, and so on and so forth? They weren't they weren't really written to be highly cited. They were written to try and influence what people did. They just became highly cited later okay because people had to in fact react to to some of those papers even if it was to get citations by people telling me that i was wrong okay that's quite a good way of getting citations actually one of the strategies which i've adopted at time so if you can re- evoke a, re- a response like that, um, and some of, the uncertainty, some of the early uncertainty work was, was, was like that. There were lots of people saying how I was wrong, the glue work, that that wasn't the way to do it, and so on and so forth. Um, and so um, being honest means being explicit about some of the uncertainties involved mm-hmm. and, and recognizing some of those epistemic uncertainties that are really difficult to deal with um, and you know that applies not only in hydrology it, because we have, in, in, as I said, relatively fast to run models. We can we can address that problem perhaps more easily in hydrology than we can with some of the computationally demanding models in some other subject areas. Hmm. So it's been a good platform with which to try and develop some of those ideas. Hmm. But it comes out of being honest about your science, hmm. okay? About about the uncertainties, about what you can say, what you can't say about how some of these systems and the processes within those systems are operating. Um, so, um, I did suggest that for the next generation, um, it was up to them now having pointed out all the uncertainties, it was up to them to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, um, I can leave, leave it there now. I'm retiring. You <laughs> <what> it's <I'm> <laughs> well, your problem um,
0: now. Your problem.
2: Yeah yeah no
1: problem yeah exactly well keith bevan thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for thanks for joining our odyssey um on our little quest for knowledge and um yeah i think we'll keep a lot of what you said in mind about uncertainties about being honest um as well i think these kind of things apply to almost everything so
2: yeah thank you for your wisdom you're welcome it's been fun thanks thanks a lot